Hey, welcome back to Ship It, a podcast made by engineers for engineers from Dept Agency. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we talk with Dept Director of Engineering Jonah Jolly and Dept Lead Technical Project Manager Stephanie Brisson about the relationship between product teams and engineering teams. We talk about what makes a good partnership between them and what doesn't make a good partnership. And we go into the importance of empathy, trust, and keeping priorities visible to the teams at all times. And as you might expect, or might not expect, we spend a lot of time on Agile and whether it hurts or helps with this relationship, especially around velocity metrics and stand-ups. As usual, we end it with our favorite picks. So on with the show. Welcome to Ship It. Today, we are talking about breaking down uh, silos between product and engineering teams. So many of us in the software industry have, whether you're on a product team or a business owner of a product, or you're on an engineering team, you've felt the struggle between what a product team or a business team wants and what an engineering team can deliver. And it can cause, uh, can cause a lot of consternation. You often find that there are some really well-oiled teams. And today we want to talk with a couple of our guests here from DEP about this and how we can aim towards having all of our teams be well-oiled machines and break down those silos between product and engineering. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. We have Jonah and Stephanie. So Jonah, you want to introduce yourself? I'm Jonah, and I'm a director of engineering for Dept, based out of Denver. I've been working with Dept for four years, and before that, I worked a few different places. I started out uh, working at a startup where we created technology around the fact that an ear is as unique as a fingerprint, and created a, a suite of tools for identification and auth using that premise. Then I worked at Isilon, that became EMC, that became Dell, which is a scale-out NAS product. And I worked in automation, creating frameworks and developer tools to support the org. Finally, before Dept, I worked at ExtraHop, which does deep packet inspection. And there I was a performance engineer working on how to optimize various features. So I've been able to experience various sizes of organizations and how product and engineers collaborate between them. And Stephanie, do you want to introduce yourself? Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm Stephanie Brusson. I am one of the lead technical project managers here at Dept. And I've worked with countless engineering teams at this point with various roles, such as agile coaching or being a scrum master to what I do today with the technical project management. So I've been in product company environments to the consulting work I do now and have done a lot of process evaluation and improvement implementation and things like that from existing teams to greenfield teams and greenfield projects. So great to be here. We got good representation from both sides here. So let's have a good discussion. And I suppose I should introduce myself to I'm Matt Merrill. I'm a director of engineering at Dept, and I have a long background in a lot of backend engineering too. So my job here today is not really to share a lot of information. My job here is to moderate. So let's get started. I thought that a good way to start this would be to share your best war stories about product versus engineering and maybe posing it that way is a bad way, but kind of want to talk about the anti-patterns first so we can work into what works well. So I'll actually share first in the spirit of just setting the right tone. So one of my favorite stories, everyone shall remain nameless, companies, people. One of my favorite stories is uh, I spent good six months leading an engineering team that varied from about six to 10 engineers. And a lot of these were very highly paid engineers. And we were working on this feature that was uh, part of a, a new, newly formed architecture. And we started off with this feature and it was supposed to be like the best feature in the world. And basically the gist was that we were going to automate on the web, 
make a self-service contract signup process where people could browse their own contract and sign it for this company. It involved a ton of work, a ton of work with e-signing documents and things like that, working with the product owner who was very discriminating, very strong opinions about what needed to be done. We got it done. We released it and we started running metrics on it only to find that there were four transactions run through this system. And there, granted, this system had about, you know, had thousands and thousands of users, active users. We had four transactions through it. And two of those were test transactions that we did after releases. We found out a couple of months later, the feature wasn't being used because the sales group got commission on selling things manually. So they had absolutely zero incentive to push people to this feature. So the feature essentially died on the vine because it was just flawed from the start. I had to laugh. There were a lot of engineers in that project that were kind of bummed about that. That was one of my favorites. Lack of communication up front kind of killed that one. That was my favorite. So mine is more just kind of on the general process. At one of my first companies, everything was waterfall. And so through like many release cycles, kind of what would happen is that planning, each feature team would have a laundry list of things that they want to do. Some of it was, you know, it could be tech debt. It could be, oh, this is a really cool feature that we want to implement. And then there was also the list handed down from product who also got it from sales of these are the must-haves because we sold it for the next quarter. They would, you know, come up with these lists. They prioritize it. Obviously, the things that have been sold were first and product would go, okay, looks good. We will see you in six months when everything's delivered. You know, all these feature teams would go off separately and work on their features. And in about four to six months, they'd start handing it off to QA. This is kind of where the fireworks would start. The longer it took QA to kind of get through all of the features and understand like what was going on and find these bugs and fix them, the more at risk all these features were to get dumped out of this release and either pushed or like fully abandoned. And then kind of what would happen there is that product would then come back and be like, well, what's going on? Why, why aren't things done? We had signed these off and said we'd be releasing them in eight months. And so the crux of the issue was there's like a clustered system. There's a lot of different features in user space working together. And so there was a lot of like resource contention that wouldn't really get uncovered until very far down the line. And the problem was, you know, these features teams were running the SDLC. They're kind of, you know, doing their own individual, very like scoped work, but they weren't thinking about the system as a whole. And we weren't really able to communicate those needs earlier because we were kind of so married to the waterfall linear process that all of these things that we could have gotten earlier came later. And so it would turn into a couple months of ripping things out to make sure that we hit a release that was already months past the deadline. And it would just continue to create a lot of contention between product and engineering of, you know, nobody was at the table understanding each other. It happened every, every cycle. If you could see my face on this podcast, you'd see me wincing. It really led to like a lot of engineer teams were disheartened because they had a lot of really exciting, cool features that they wanted to get in. You know, expectations weren't really managed and there wasn't a really good line of communication between all the teams to, you know, work together and, and understand, you know, this is what's feasible in eight months because they would say, you know, this is the timeline and this is the scope, but they couldn't, there was never any um, compromise. Thanks for sharing that. We'll, we'll, we'll give the, uh, the therapy pillow, uh, so we're passing the therapy pillow around, uh, Stephanie, would you like to go next? 
Okay, so my story is it's the absolute first project I was ever on in the business. I was a business analyst and the project was it was tiny, right? It was just like I think we were redesigning like some patient intake forms or something like that for like a dental finance company or something like that. I set up all my ceremonies. I had, you know, we had our stand up, we had our sprint reviews, we had our planning, all that good stuff. You know, the end of the first sprint came along and, you know, we didn't really get much done. Okay, you know, maybe we're just having a hard time like getting set up and and stuff. Sometimes that happens, right? So the next sprint goes along and it's sprint two and we're in the review with the client and Again, we really don't have any progress to show. And then so we go into the fourth sprint and every time we're meeting with this client, we had nothing to show for it. It was just like this massive backlog and the developers being like, yeah, we're working on it. We're working on it. And, you know, we just need to do this. And I don't know what took the client so long. Like eventually they were like, all right, guys, we're pulling the plug on this. And I remember I was so humiliated because I really took like full responsibility for that project just not working out. I mean, it was my first one. I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I'm not meant to be in the industry. I mean, it made me reflect a lot on what the actual role of someone who's in charge of product is versus being the actual technical implementer of the work. So while it was a hard way to start, I think it was actually a good way to start. I mean, I definitely, you know, tripped and fell at the starting line. But at the same time, there's a lot to learn from it. So I'm excited to talk about all that. Yeah. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Sometimes, sometimes it's really important to learn what not to do. I could share a lot of embarrassing stories about the beginning of my career too. But what do we think we learned from like these stories? Like I'm particularly curious about things like over the courses of your careers in engineering and product project management, like what are the lessons learned? And particularly like, are there things that makes the bad teams bad and the good teams good? And and what are those things? So, you know, Stephanie, if you want to keep going with that. I think for me, it started with this fear of not sounding like I knew what I was talking about. I knew that things weren't working. I knew that we weren't seeing results, but I wasn't exactly sure how to follow up and figure out what the problem was. And while there's all these things in terms of product where you need to have like roadmaps and timelines and and things like that, there's a whole nother part of our job that requires us to really understand what it's like to be the people implementing, the people that are actually doing the work. And if you aren't willing to put yourself in that headspace, meet with your team members to actually understand what their challenges are, what the easy parts are, what the hard parts are then you're really just not going to have good communication and you're going to be talking to a brick wall. And so for me, I was just learning about, well, I don't need to know the nitty gritty details of technical implementation. I did need to learn how to recognize when another team member was afraid to ask for help. And that's something that's sort of like this middle gray area that can actually be really beneficial when multiple people are owning that and having each other's backs despite their role. Yeah, a lot of empathy there you know, knowing what the other person is going through. And it also just helps you plan better if you understand that some particular task is difficult. Ideally, I've learned that developers are often very optimistic in what they think that they can get done. And 
you know, I think that's part of where the, some of the contention goes. But you you start to learn like who knows what they're talking about and who may just need more time to get more context and things like that. I've been reading Radical Candor by Kim Scott. I don't know if you guys have heard of that book, but uh, a great book on management. And um, one of the things that she really pounds home is making people feel comfortable enough to come to you with bad news because it ultimately ends up in better success. And I feel like what you're saying has a lot of commonality with that of like, hey, I'm not here to yell at you. I'm here to support you, but I need to know what's going on. I mean, it's best to learn about bad news early, right? And no, it isn't always bad news. It's more just learning about the challenges early and you can course correct and still deliver in a good way. The next thing that that I'm curious about, a little bit more of a pointed question, which is how can engineering teams help product teams make better decisions, right? Like we just talked about empathy. I think that if product and engineering are working well together, they kind of, they want to help each other make better decisions. So I'm curious about that direction of like, how can engineering teams help product teams make better decisions? You know, the biggest thing that we can do to help product teams as engineers is be present with them when they're first planning and making these decisions. A lot of times tension kind of arises when product just hands off these requirements and says, go build it. You have X amount of time. And I think, you know, the way that we can really help product make informed decisions about, you know, this is the level of effort. This is, you know, what it's going to take. And this is the time it will take is being there with them when they're first kind of scoping out that initial level of effort, bringing up the different issues that we see that may arise. One of the things that we have that's to the benefit of, you know, a product being built is that we have a lot of context around what it takes to get something to where it needs to be. And if we don't share that and help product teams learn about that effort, it makes it really hard for them to make a decision that we would also be okay with. I've had really productive calls and really not productive calls. And the ones that are the most meaningful is when engineers come prepared to explain somewhere between like, layman's terms and the technical realm of things. People who are willing to just sort of walk the line a little bit and say, okay, this is the feature that you want. This is how we think that we would do it. This is the idea. These are the pieces that we don't know enough information about at this point. So when you're able to say, I don't know enough about this particular tool or the database setup or whatever, those little pieces of information are things that we can take into account um, so that we're thinking about things in terms of timeline and also just like who is the best team member to take on a particular feature or what have you. So I would say actually taking those meetings seriously when you have either refinement happening, they can be so exhausting and it can actually be a really fun exercise. You know, got somebody saying, okay, how would we do this? How do we do this? That can start a really great conversation and people can call each other out and be like, no, don't do it this way. It would be way faster if we do it this way. And it actually increases everybody's ownership. And it also creates an environment where the developers know what the other developers are working on and product knows what the developer is working on. And I mean, it just results in a lot more transparency, especially when, you know, all of us want less meetings and things like that. Okay. How about the flip side of this coin? Like how can product teams help engineers move faster and make better decisions? 
these features and these products get prioritized for reasons, right? And so a lot of times it's good for engineers to understand who is making decisions and why. So that is information that product owners and managers really do need to convey to their development teams. Because I can see how it would be really frustrating. You do all this work on this feature and it's not really what a stakeholder wanted or was excited about. And you do your presentation or a demo or whatever, and like it just falls flat. That would be a bummer, you know? And so I think it's important to, I mean, be communicating what factors in the equation are leading your decision making. Oh, if we get this feature out, we can start selling it and have more revenue faster, giving us more time to make these other features that are cool. They're just not as, they just don't affect the bottom line as much, but they make us more competitive compared to our competitors or things like that. I think it's really something product managers and product owners should take seriously. And the reason that you make decisions could change as the project goes on. And so it just goes back to that age-old communication and communicating correctly. And honestly, repeating the priorities on a regular basis builds the team's confidence on what should I be working on right now? I love that. And I've I've used that tactic myself of like, just keep the priorities up, review them every day. And if they shift, let people know. And why they shift. And I mean, this is not being prioritized because we need approval on a design or something like that, or we're missing this kind of information. So Jonah, how does that resonate with you? I mean, I love that. One of the things about a, like a highly functioning team is that shared vision. I think back to my younger self developer days of when something would be deprioritized and I wouldn't know why. And I would be like, well, this is dumb. I don't want to, I don't want to work on this new thing. Like, why did we switch? Like I spent so much time thinking about this. And then the other kind of idea of a lot of times engineers like to pride themselves on the efficiency of like how they get through this feature or like develop. And so having a wrench kind of put into that process can be a little shocking. At the same time, you know, we want to be a part of those decisions and having a better idea of the why really like helps us kind of see everything from like a 5,000 foot view, not quite 10,000, but have a little bit more agency in the view of the company and, and the strategy. And when we better understand the decisions, like it makes it a lot easier to kind of work with the team to make that next feature delivered that was prioritized. When you said, you know, I put time into thinking about this and I worked on this. And I mean, a lot of us really take pride in in the time that we put into something, you know, and if something gets deprioritized, you know, it's hard to not take that personally, you know, on some level. I mean, we do have to let things roll off our backs, but I mean, we also have to be thinking about like you're taking somebody's work and saying it's not the priority right now. I mean, that should be delivered in a, you know, a clear reasoning way. It's not oh, we just don't like you, so. And it's definitely, you know, like having that view into kind of the greater strategy of the company, I think really helps set the context for engineers working on a product and kind of understanding the greater vision. We don't have to necessarily be a part of that greater vision. Like that's not really in our responsibilities, but just being aware of it and knowing that we're supporting the company by kind of the work that is being passed down to us really makes it really a lot easier to kind of stomach those changes and work with the team 
and react to it in a positive way. If there wasn't that transparency, you don't have that kind of shared trust of like, well, this is what happened. Sorry, we have to reprioritize. It makes it a lot harder to continue working as a team together because it erodes a little bit of trust that our team is being looked out for and we're being able to work on the things that we want to work on. Especially when you're actually demonstrating the work that you've completed. You know, if you're going into a demo and you're in front of stakeholders and decision makers and things like that, I mean, ideally you want it to feel as low stakes as possible. And if you feel like, you know, your product owner has your back and is going to answer the questions that, you know, come from whomever, that certainly builds that trust as well. You know, you just want to keep demos flowing smoothly, right? And, uh, you know, have it be a positive experience for everybody. So, yeah, I love the idea of agency and curiosity. I mean, everybody wants agency, right? Like despite if you're in software or whatever, you know, if you're just being handed tasks to do without any idea why, like that's pretty much the definition of a miserable job, right? So like the more agency you have, one of my things that I've learned throughout my career is like engineers are so good at proposing alternatives that other people had maybe hadn't thought of because they're put into a technical box. It's you come up with some really interesting things when you have that dialogue. So what would you say the most misunderstood thing about product teams there is by engineers? Then how can we help clear that up? I'd say that a lot of times they don't think that we think of our teams as people. Sometimes it seems like we come across as like slave driving, like deliver it by this time. This is the release date and things like that. And that's not you know, at least for my teams, that's really not the way that I like to operate. And I think it's all about, you know, predictability and being able to, you know, have trust of the people you're delivering the product for. That's really what the product managers are concerned about. Like if we say we're planning to have this out by the third quarter, it gets released in the third quarter versus, you know, Q1, if that makes sense. So aren't slave driving it's more of like, help us be reliable. And so that you can take time off. You can definitely, you know, go on vacation with your family, things like that. You aren't like fully obsessed with like, don't take time off. We need to like, this is the timeline that I was thinking of. It's more about like, not necessarily missing the deadlines or what the deadlines are. It's just having what we say, the people that care, having that be real. You know what I mean? And so there's some level of like filtering that's happening from information from the developers. We take it, you know, okay, maybe we add a little bit of extra time. Or we say something, it's meaningful and can be trusted. That particular instance of adding a little bit of extra time, like I've talked to developers who think that as product mistrusting development, and I look at it as like, no, they're looking to cover your butt. So what I've always thought is generally when what I've noticed when developers are pointing a story or estimating effort that a lot of times they're thinking like, well, what should this be done in? This should not take me three weeks. And if it takes me three weeks, I mean, why am I even here? You know, I really do think that a lot of times developers, you know, they care. They're in front of their colleagues. They want to be respected. And I totally get that. And so a lot of times they'll say something is less effort than it actually is. So, you know, there's some tricks about that. There definitely is an element of peer pressure to it. And I have felt it. How about, Jonah, the most misunderstood thing about engineering teams by product teams? Jonah's got a big smile on his face. 
I mean, it's really funny. It, I don't think this is the most understood thing, but I'm just laughing because I was thinking about one of the, I'll get to the most, but I think one of the misunderstood things I was going to say <laughs> was that we don't fully think about the level of effort it takes for something. <laughs> you know, generally estimating is very hard, especially at the start of a project. And in consulting, when if it's not greenfield, you know, we have to come up to domain level expertise, like very quickly in an environment where you would usually have months to do it and we have weeks. In that case, you know, we're pretty bad at estimating. I feel like generally we think or, you know, we try and think deeply about like what it would take to get there. And maybe we don't necessarily estimate the steps that well, but I think we do try and spend a lot of time thinking about that before we come up with the estimation. Maybe that's just like, as an engineer, I will hold that dearly forever. I think about it. I know whether it's wildly incorrect or not. I, I don't know. But one of the most uh, misunderstood things is just kind of the way of working. A lot of devs, we really like long blocks of time for that deep work to really kind of noodle and, and sink our teeth into a problem and work on a feature or a ticket or whatever it might be. But on the other side of that, we want to be collaborative and we want to like communicate and, you know, be available for our team. And so I think we struggle a lot of times with balancing that with getting work done. And so like how it comes off of, we're like, well, we need to protect our time to be efficient and get work done. But then what that comes off as is kind of adversarial to like, Stephanie, you were talking about your misunderstood thing and, you know, kind of boils down to the optics of the project of you know, we need predictability. We need to have these touch points. We need to be able to communicate effectively how long it's going to take. And to do that, we need to talk with the engineers. And so like, I think for us, you know, for the engineering side, it's like, well, I need to not have all these meetings because I need to do work. I want to be available and, and let you know as much as I can of like the information that you need. And so, you know, it comes from a place of, we want to be efficient and do the best work we can as fast as we can. But then for a product owner or a product manager, it looks like, oh, they get mad at me when I put meetings on their calendar or I ask them questions. And I don't think it's necessarily coming from that kind of intent. That's a really good one. I want to know from you two is, is there such thing as a good stand-up? I've had them be very meaningful for me. And I know that I bother team members less when I have a meaningful one. I think at a certain point, I was very against standups. I think as I've continued to be in engineering, I see there's a lot of value to them. I think the biggest thing is really coming to that contract with your team of like, this is what it's for. At the same time, like it could be the only touch point two developers have to really like talk about a problem if they're not collaborating and being able to kind of noodle on a problem where a Standup is 15 minutes and like, oh, it's 15 minutes and then like take it off, like sidebar it. I think in a lot of ways, I've always seen as like, well, we're doing this for like standup. I know what all my teammates are working on, especially in like a smaller group setting. And then when I want to talk to somebody about a problem I'm having or like ask somebody, you know, I need this, like what, what will it take? And that gets sidebarred or that for me was like a pretty big detractor to like communicating with my team. Whereas like we have the space to talk about our blockers 
yet it's getting pushed off to another time. That was like kind of hard for me to reconcile. I've run a team as a, as like a product owner and been on teams as an engineer and run engineering teams as a team lead. The only thing I can come up with is like, I hate standups, but the only thing worse than having standups is not having standups. Is there a good way to run them? I don't know. I know that not having them creates a lot of problems unless you have like two or three people on a team. If you have two or three people on a team, you can get past it. But beyond that, I feel like maybe there's something to the like, we're all in this misery together. So let's enjoy it. I was on a team. The project started up about, I don't know, probably 30 to 40 days before lockdown for March 2020. And the project ended up going for a couple of years. In the end, if we canceled standup, like people were bombed. I'm not saying that like the world needs to be locked down in order for standups to be mean. Like, all we need is a pandemic. Your natural will work. One thing that I would say is that on Wednesdays, we had a person that was responsible for, we called it the standup question. And it was just a small question where people, share something like slightly personal, but not so close to the chest, if that makes sense. It's like, are you a cat person or a dog person? You know, how many languages do you speak or, you know, something like that. And over time, we all just got to know each other as friends. And so it was small and it was definitely built over time. And it was only once a week. Like, what's your favorite condiment or what do you put on your hot dog or something like that? It really does. Um, help people learn about each other and, you know, feel more connected to one another despite their roles. So, but everybody has to participate. I would imagine there's a certain amount of people who don't want to do that type of thing, but I think most people would. On one of my past teams, we would do something very, very similar to that at the beginning of retros. We would use the answer, like the alphabetical answer to determine how, what order you went in the retro, which was fun too. See, I've only done retros anonymously. Which is probably the right way to go. (laughs) What ways does Agile help engineering and product teams work together and what ways doesn't it? I love Agile. I really believe in it. But I do feel like almost everybody has been exposed to some bastardized version of Scrum in some way or another that has just scarred them in some way or another. It's helpful in the sense that it maintains flexibility, but I think it's important to understand what it's not. And it's, you know, when you have a timeline of when you, we are delivering this by this date, you know, that's not as agile thinking. It's more of a waterfall thinking. And, and we have a tendency to kind of be stuck between that, especially at a consulting agency, right? Because, you know, a client hires us and says, okay, are you going to get this done in this engagement? Or we have to get it done within an engagement. So it's always like this push pull between like a waterfall state of mind in an agile state of mind. In a lot of ways, it doesn't work or it gives false promises because kind of the idea is like, oh, you know, we can iterate on this like chunk of this feature. We can give it to the customer. We can get a bunch of feedback and we can like work on it and iterate on that. And I think generally like nothing is that small of scope to really like do that. Usually when we're talking about a product or a feature, there's a lot of work that has to go into enabling all those features. And so at like kind of the macro level of like time it takes to get a certain feature done and agile saying, you know, being like, oh, we can be like flexible and iterative and we can 
be infinitely flexible to whatever the customer's needs are or scope creep is, like that makes it hard when everything has a deadline. You know, we can't infinitely iterate on something and not release it. Like we get caught up with that idea of how flexible can we be versus we need to deliver something. This is an interesting one. Let's dig into this because I'm hearing two very different viewpoints here. And I'm going to make a broad generalization with based on my experience that what I've found, especially in the past, mm, let's say five to 10 years, let me step further back. I remember I was showing my age. I remember when agile was like the thing and like, I was fighting to get agile into like this big organization I was working into and like engineers were really pushing agile and usually product. Well, they weren't even called product teams that are like business teams were pushing waterfall because they wanted dates. And I found this very interesting reversal where like now I've found, especially in my past client work here at Dept, where it seems like the product teams are the ones all about agile. And now the engineering teams are kind of against it. Am I making a false observation here? Is, is that? I've absolutely seen that. I don't want to speak for the engineers, John, but that is definitely a trend that I've seen is something more that, you know, the business side is like, oh, we just got to go agile or. You know, that'll solve the world's problems. I think from kind of the project, I would concede that I think agile with the sprints and like the chunk of work getting done, it helps with optics around predictability, which is like a very important thing. You know, like how do we measure progress, you know, and its velocity? The thing that I always struggle with is, you know, we have a product, we have a feature, we have something to deliver, and we have this much time. And then we take agile. And we put it on the project as a process. It's like an internal struggle of like what agile promotes versus like the reality is we need to deliver in this amount of time. So Jonah, I want to try this on for size. You're kind of saying like, it's almost like an idealized version of the way that people want it to go, but it's not really how it goes. I think that's like a fair summary of that. Agile started as a set of principles. I've heard people say lowercase a agile. And it's transformed into uppercase A, Agile, where it's a set of processes that almost goes against the spirit of what it was originally created to do. And um, by the way, Stephanie, I've never worked with you, but everything you're saying, you sound like a great product owner. I want to work with you because people that like you that do understand that it's, it's about the lines of communication. It's about trust. It's about having a high functioning team. It's not about the Agile ceremonies. The ceremonies are there as a means to an end. They're not the thing. I've been stuck in a lot of teams, seen this in client work where people are dogmatic about Agile. It's head scratching. I'm just like, how did it get this way? I don't understand. As Stephanie has said, we've all had that person who has scarred us with other than Agile. <laughs> She's here to show us there's a better way. <laughs> Speaking of agile and we were talking about dogmatic and, you know, and metrics and things like that, velocity metrics, when are they too much? What do they help? What's the right balance? I don't know how many times every project that I'm on, it's like, okay, what does one point mean? Does one point equal a day? Like that's where everybody starts. Everybody wants the time. And at least from my perspective is, again, it goes back to that consistency. Like, I don't care what one point is. I'm going to notice like the team's trend within a sprint. And one team might 
get 12 points done. Another team might get 36 points done. That doesn't necessarily mean that one team is actually producing more than the other. It's just that their increment of measure. I don't know if you guys have ever took like chemistry. I assume if you're engineers, you probably had some chemistry lab at some point. But I like to think of points as just like you're calibrating, you know, you're just figuring out like, okay, this team as a whole, not just the specific one person, as a whole, they get this amount of work done. And that helps me be predictable to my stakeholders. I've seen, and I'm curious if Jonah has, I've seen those points go off the rails where people just live and die by them. How do you as a product person, because your view of this makes total sense to me, how do you make sure that that doesn't bleed out and just turn into like, why did Matt's team not deliver as many points last spring? Like, that's concerning. Like, how do you handle a question like that? I don't believe it's a necessary metric for leadership to know. You don't need to know that this team is at 36 points and this team is at 12. What you need to know is that they're honoring their commitments for the sprint. That is actually a place where the communication should stop, in my opinion, because you don't want that judgment coming from leadership. We're like, man, 12 points again. Like, how do we get them up to 36 points? My opinion is we just need to like relax a little bit about points, understand that they're important for predictability. I definitely would echo a lot of what Stephanie was saying. I think it definitely takes a couple sprints to really understand and create that social contract in a way of we all feel that this is what our points mean to us and we are still aligning in the beginning. It can be wildly different. A very small feature could be two times as big as like the biggest feature in the backlog. And we just don't quite know until we've done a couple sprints of work and understanding. So I think a lot of times when a team is ramping up, getting situated, starting on a code base, starting to work in the sprint system, we don't have that predictability yet. And that can be concerning. Whereas if we're communicating, you know, like in a couple months, you look at this, we're going to find that true line of, of velocity that is a lot more predictable, but it takes a while to get there, especially with a new team. I've found that the most useful part of pointing or sizing or whatever is when a team gets in a room and like, you're like, okay, we got to do this. And everybody's like, yeah, it's a two. Okay. The real value comes when somebody goes like, no, that's a one. And another person goes, that's an eight. That's where the real value happens. It's like, wait, what's the disconnect here? Why does one person, because either one person's completely right, one person's completely wrong, or like, there's just a whole bunch of stuff you got to figure out. So Stephanie, I'm going to follow up. So you said hiding points. uh, That's a bad way to put it, but not showing points to stakeholders. I completely agree with you, but you mentioned like honoring your commitments is utmost. So I'm curious what, based on your, like your style, like what do you do when a commitment is missed? When there's a good reason? I like to keep track of a risk log and I'm constantly adding to it and communicating what risks are. Generally speaking, I would say that when we miss a commitment, it's not a surprise because of the level of commitment. And, you know, sometimes it's just things that we can't control and owning that, you know, and not being sort of weak and timid and like, we're so sorry we missed this deadline. It's like, look, we found out that we had to do this other thing. You know, we had to do a bunch of changes to the endpoint or whatever. This is our updated schedule based on that information. 
And this is how this affects our commitments in the future. I mean, that's, that's really all you can do. I love that. I love that owning it. Don't be apologetic for it. It's just, this is the way it is. And to your earlier point about trust and being able to break bad news is like, if you do have that trust, people are going to tell you about those things. You'll know it early. You can communicate it early and get ahead of it. That's another thing about, you know, building trust with your team is if they know you're going to go to bat for them and say, look, it wasn't because we weren't working or that we weren't working correctly. There was just an unknown. And now we know. And now it's different. Let's see. What did we learn today? We learned that all the engineers want to work with Stephanie as their product manager. A hundred percent. But I think what, what was interesting to me is that a lot of this conversation turned to agile. It happened more than I thought it would. And I thought that was really interesting and good. All right. Let's end it with picks. So what are picks? Picks are just something interesting that you've been obsessing on or jamming on for the past few weeks. Doesn't have to be work related. We, we always end it on a, kind of a fun note for the episode. So I am going to go first. And the thing that I'm going to pick, I just wrote a blog post for the Depth Engineering blog, shameless plug on logging for Node.js. And the thing that I found was a logging framework for Node called Log4JS, which has a horrible name because it's similar to Log4J for Java. But I had never tried it before, before I wrote this article, and I actually loved that library. It was really configurable and awesome. Usually I don't go with a work-related pick, but I did this time. So what do you think of that? Well, I mean, it keeps snowing here in Denver, but I am very excited for spring. And so I've been pulling out all of my gardening books, getting ready to looking at my notes from last year of what worked and what didn't in my garden beds and what I can maybe uh, plant this year. And so been trying to optimally draw and figure out the perfect planting spacing for the different vegetables that I want this year. Yeah. So that's what I've been thinking about. You're writing an algorithm? I'm not writing an algorithm. I, I just kind of eyeball it with a pencil. Love that. I am going to have my first like real garden this year. So, okay. Well, so I recently bought a house and I am so excited. But anyway, so I'm on the fun projects right now. I have been really into molding work, like not like actual growing mold, but like molded you see like on the walls or like crown molding and things like that. And so I actually ended up putting molding along the island in my kitchen and then in the dining room did some paneling and molding and it is coming out so great. I have never done anything like this and I had to make sure that I had really straight lines. I was like, you know, I had like my ruler out making sure that, you know, it's like three inches from the corner of the wall and like, you know, using my level and all that kind of stuff. I was like so proud of myself. So maybe I should take up carpentry. 